right on the dot to starting. Good afternoon, welcome everybody. I'm uh, delighted to present to you a speaker today, Dr. Eldad Ben Aharon, who is a lecturer in international relations of the Middle East at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands, and a Minerva Fellow and Associate Researcher at the Peace Research Institute in Frankfurt. Dr. Ben Aharon is a historian of international relations, specializing in the Cold War uh, in the Middle East, and his main areas of interest are Israel's diplomatic history, Turkey's foreign policy, intelligence history, counterterrorism, oral history, theory and practice, Jewish trans transnationalism, and uh, the memory of the Holocaust and the Armenian genocide, which will be the topic of uh, the talk today. Mm -hmm. uh, his forthcoming book with Edinburgh University Press offers a critical re-examination of Israel's relationship with Turkey in the last decade of the Cold War. The book reveals the complicated and often contradictory process of managing the legacies of the Armenian genocide and the Holocaust in international relations. Uh, Dr. Ben Aharon is also involved in research-led public engagement, and he regularly writes um, essays on current affairs for Newsweek, The Conversation, The Jerusalem Post, Haaretz, and The National Interest. And the title of the talk today is, of his talk today is Supporting Denial, Israel's Foreign Policy and the Armenian Genocide. Thank you, Adel, for coming. Thank you very much for uh, having me. First of all, thanks a lot for the kind introduction, Yanko. Um, uh, so happy to be here and uh, run this in person because, uh, yeah, I mean, it's quite obvious why. Um, so what I would like to do is, first of all, um, start with the layout uh, of today's talk. Uh, I want to introduce the structure of uh, uh, this talk. Basically, in the first part, I'm going to introduce a sort of a baseline that we can all come uh, out from and uh, discuss a little bit a uh, conceptual uh, uh, recognition of genocide. What's the difference between parliamentary and governmental uh, recognition um, and how it actually applies to the state of Israel? And in the second part, which will be more empirical, um, I will discuss how it all started, how it all began in the late 70s and 80s. Um, so basically this is the, uh, the layout. I want to proceed with also my argument for today. And it consists of uh, two pillars actually. So first of all I'm arguing uh, what I'm saying now from a historical perspective. And I want to say that Israel's foreign policy on the Armenian genocide was shaped by decisions taken uh, in the 90s but they crystallized already two decades earlier, okay? And the, the, the two pillars of this uh, uh, argument is that particularly after Israel lost Iran uh, after the 1979 revolution, they uh, put all their pressure, all their emphasis on the relations with Turkey. I'll, I will also explain why, uh, why is that uh, so important. And the contested memories of the Armenian genocide, which during the 70s emerged to international relations and suddenly appeared there were actually the right component in the right time, okay? Um, what I want to say before I start the talk about Israeli foreign policy on the Armenian genocide, I want to say first that our starting point is what happened in 1915, okay? It's very important to start from this because yeah, I mean, some people have different uh, assumptions or different uh, understandings of the event. So, basically, between 1915 and 1923, 
close to 1.5 million Armenians were exterminated by the Young Turks uh, regime uh, during the First World War. And this is our premise. This is the, the starting point of the talk. Um, it's very important to say that right now because later on we have a different narrative coming from uh, Turkey and Turkey's uh, diplomats. And it's uh, really important to uh, uh, mention that, to underline this, uh, this part. I would also like to say uh, additional uh, I want to make additional point about this that some of you probably know a few stuff about the topic, know a few angles about the topic. I will not be able to discuss all of them today in 45 minutes. What I, I will uh, try to do is basically discuss a few points and, and specifically what I argued um, and give a few emphasis on the Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, engagement with the Armenian genocide. Okay, so we have a research problem, sorry, which is why Israel doesn't recognize the Armenian genocide. And it's puzzling because there's a few, yeah, quite uh, conventional uh, wisdom uh, points about this, that uh, Israeli relations with Turkey are too important, or Jews and Armenians are natural allies because they are both victims of genocide, uh, and Israel prefers Azerbaijan over uh, Armenians, and so on. But this is... I think that these dichotomies uh, uh, are not helping us to actually approach the problem. And to help us do that, I want to actually present uh, here two, two questions. What the term recognition, recognition of, the of the Armenian genocide actually means, okay? We need to, to figure out what it means exactly. And which of Israel's in institutions refuse to recognize the Armenian genocide and why, okay? so. We need a conceptual uh, clarity here. So scholars from different di disciplines actually debating about the term recognition, what it means. It's like terrorism. There's so many de definitions to terrorism uh, as much as to genocide and also to recognition. But most of them actually agree that it's a vital human need and it's, it's, it's very important uh, emotionally and collectively for uh, groups of people to... Uh, that certain uh, history will be acknowledged, okay? In applying this to the Armenian genocide, it means that Armenians in the diaspora, especially in the diaspora, want that the events of 1915 will be recognized by countries, by institutions, as genocide, okay? And they will also combat denialism, just like we are uh, familiar with it from uh, uh, Holocaust denial, okay? The way in which Jews and Israeli Jews, Jews all over the world, combat uh, uh, Holocaust denial, okay? And here we have also a very good example. If we look at the wording of the Armenian Genocide Resolution, uh, which was uh, recognized in the uh, American Congress, both by the House of Representatives and the Senate in 19, uh, two, uh, 2019, okay? So I think it's very clear. Um, let's move forward. All right, so what's the tension, actually? Legislators give voice to a broader range of values, norms, and ethics, and they try also to protect minorities, right? For this reason, recognition could cause tension between the country's legislatives and the executives. And why government actually oppose recognition of the Armenian genocide? Well, they are responsible for so many important uh, uh, things 
For example, um, uh, it could cause grave harm to a national interest. It could, of course, deteriorate the relations with Ankara immediately. Uh, it could uh, draw a lot of uh, harsh rhetoric. Um, and it could basically harm the relations with Turkey, definitely for the short term, also maybe for the longer term. So, as a result, governments don't really interested in uh, recognizing the Armenian genocide and those interests clash between the parliaments and, and it's not specifically about Israel, they clash between those uh, two, two views of recognizing the Armenian genocide. All right, so how does this apply on Israel? We have Israeli consecutive governments, which it's quite understandable if we apply this concept why they don't want to recognize the genocide, okay? They have, uh, even though yeah, the, the uh, state of Israel is built on the ashes of the Holocaust, and even though it could uh, actually uh, uh, cause a little bit of harm or some harm to Israel uh, combat uh, against anti-Semitism and anti uh, uh, Holocaust denial, they have clear interest not to do this in specific periods of the relations with Turkey. Um, however, yeah, theoretically speaking, the Knesset should do that because these are two separate institutions and two separate uh, interests based on this uh, uh, conceptual uh, framework. Okay, so they represent a broader uh, range of views, cultures, and standpoints within the Israeli society. All right. What I would like to offer is a conceptual framework to examine the questions which I just presented and look at them from three different periods, consecutive but different periods, each of which has its own specific events, interests, factors, and so on. The first period is the formative years, okay? The late Cold War, with Cold War dynamics uh, in the Middle East. The second period um, is the post-Cold War period, and I call the first period as uh, the formative years, which I mentioned before, and the second period as the policy years, because this is when decision makers actually sat down and said we should protect Turkey's narrative for this and these reasons. Back in the first period, there were actually no real discussions about the policy. Everything was done quite far away from Israel, and there were, there were different views about this policy, and I will elaborate on that a little bit later today. Third period comes from Erdogan's administration when Erdogan came to office. Um, and I call them the contested years because there were so many clashes between Israel and Turkey, so many uh, uh, different uh, situations or peaks where Israel could easily press the button, the parliament could press the button, recognize the major genocide, and it was still not done. So it's very interesting to know why. So let me give you a, sh a really uh, broad overview about what happened in each of those periods. Well. Um, in the late Cold War period, in the formative years, we have uh, Armenian, the Armenian diaspora launching an international campaign to recognize the Armenian genocide. I will break it down a little bit later, what it means. Um, and we have a very complex uh, political situation in the Middle East with the 1979 Iranian Revolution, the peace accord between Israel and Egypt, and um, the military coup in uh, Turkey in 1980. So we have almost two years that a lot of things happening in the background of all of this. It actually started a little bit earlier, the, the 
Armenian diaspora campaign. It started in the mid-70s, but it's quite short and tense period. Um, if we look at the second period, look, there, there's so many different uh, factors happening here. We have the establishment of the Republic of Armenia. We have the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict with Azerbaijan emerge. Also, Israel has some interest in that uh, conflict. But it's beyond our conversation today. I'm just giving you a short bullet point uh, list of things. And the Knesset, this is very important for our, our talk today, the Knesset tried to pass the first I'm sorry, parliamentary uh, bill on the Armenian genocide in 1989. Specifically, it was Meretz party, a left-wing liberal uh, party, a very small party. Um, and then we have also in the, a little bit later, in the early 90s, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict seems to be on the right path of uh, resolution with the Madrid conference in 1991 and uh, the Oslo Accords in 1993, which helped a lot for Turkey to alter the relations with Israel. Uh, and, and, and that's, of course, very important to our topic. And I will get to it first. All right. Last period. Let's just look at this. So Azerbaijan became a very important Israeli ally, arm trading and oil uh, between Israel and Azerbaijan. Uh, the Mavi Marmara, which is also a very familiar uh, event from 2010 the IDF operations in Gaza, and the clashes with Hamas. Um, and the, of course, it uh, unfolds to uh, Arduan and uh, Netanyahu, a uh, very harsh rhetoric, right? Um, and last year, the Nagorno-Karabakh uh, war. And with all, during all this period, the uniqueness of the Holocaust and the ethno-nationalist uh, hardline of uh, Netanyahu's uh, government, administration, is uh, very, uh, let's say, is, it's very, uh, 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 it's, it's right there. It's, it's very uh, evident, okay? So, what I would like to do now is take this background aside for a minute and just focus on the first period, okay? Actually, the formative years, if we want to discuss this topic uh, 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 later on in a more elaborated and integrated uh, way, we need to understand, first of all, what happened here. And I what, what I would also like to do is focus on the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and not on the Parliament, okay? So let's focus on the formative years and see what happens. I hope that so far everyone's following and it all makes sense. Okay. All right. So, um, Armenians. The Armenians, after the genocide of 1915-1923, spread around the globe, creating themselves uh, different communities. You can see in the map, I mean, it's, it's quite obvious, uh, where are the main centers of uh, Armenian diaspora. And the survivors of the genocide, who start to basically start their life in a different uh, part of the world, were silent. Okay, the first generation, the survivors, and the second generation, the offsprings, were silent about the trauma, the suppressed trauma of their parents, and they didn't want to talk about the genocide. They could also not commemorate it as, uh, oh, let's put it this way. They could not really commemorate the Armenian genocide as a, a, as a global memory, okay? They could just commemorate the Armenian, Armenian genocide privately uh, in very small communities, and of course, it varies from community to community, okay? Now, 
from 1972, three, four, five onwards, we see the third generation emerging and very much influenced from the Palestinian Liberation Organization and the armed struggle of the Fatah and uh, the Popular Front of the Liberation of Palestine uh, and of course the uh, 1972 Olympic uh, Games with the murder of uh, 11 Israeli athletes. Um, it influenced the young Armenians in the Middle East and they want to actually achieve the same kind of momentum against Turkey. Okay? They were inspired by, by the achievements of uh, the PLO and other Palestinian organizations with the armed struggle against Israel. They want to achieve the same, the same goals. So the theory, the theory of terrorism basically looks at, and I think the, the prime time of the 1972 Olympics is, well, it's the, the best example of how the world stops. And in the old world where we have only television and radio, people stop doing anything they, they, they do and just look at television, they were, they were amazed. And suddenly the, the Palestinians could actually draw so much attention to their cause. I think it inspires not just the Armenians, but many other uh, uh, minority groups, ethnic groups that had the same uh, aspirations. Um, so it's, it's important to mention in the context of the Palestinians, the, uh, the Armenian Secret Army for the Liberation of Armenia, uh, Asala, uh, which uh, operated slightly together with the Palestinians, but basically were inspired by uh, those uh, Palestinians, and for those reasons. Um, so we can actually uh, summarize it into the th uh, three R's, okay? They actually want to uh, force Turkey to recognize the Armenian genocide. It's very important. The recognition, which, which I just mentioned at the beginning. Um, reparations, like Holocaust restitution from West, West Germany. Uh, reparations of Turkey for the genocide and restoration of the historical homeland in Eastern Anatolia. Um, these were the, the three R's, but they also had, um, and I'll get to it very soon, they also had an imperialist, um, righteous uh, point of view of terrorism. They want to, it was actually a Cold War phenomenon, okay? They want to beat imperialism, they want to beat uh, the Americans, and, and uh, therefore they, uh, between 1973 and 1985, Assala assassinated approximately uh, 60 Turkish diplomats. It's contested whether this number is accurate, but approximately 60 uh, Turkish diplomats, and it's quite a lot. And the family members, so it's not, it was not just the, the diplomats themselves. Some of them were walking in the street with their children on, or the wife, and both were assassinated, or the whole family. Think about that. And it mainly happened in Western countries. So. Uh, there were consequences to that, um, which I'm going to uh, discuss in the next slide. Okay, so the, the idea was not just promoting the three R's, was also to promote the uh, anti-Western agenda. Okay, anti-imperialist, anti-Western. So, these, these were uh, familiar photos from the late 70s and 80s. Every month, two months, three months, uh, very uh, big funerals in Turkey um, that looks like that I mean it's, it's very very often uh, th this, these images were very uh, familiar to many uh, 
many people lived in Turkey back in the time, and, and the Turkish newspapers looked just like that uh, back in those years. Um, and it caused a lot of concern in Turkey. So Turkey suddenly need to explain the world what, what's happening here. Why so many Turkish diplomats being assassinated? And why, that's also important, why those countries, the third countries, need to protect Turkish diplomats? Okay, so it's, it's not just a Turkish affair. It's not just a Turkish problem. It's also the hosting country uh, problem to protect those uh, Turkish diplomats. They also had to explain the world what happened in 1915 and to create a sort of a response, a well-calculated response to the events of 1915. They also were building on a cooperation with the hosting country with regards to counter-terrorism uh, initiatives. Okay? The Israeli diplomats recognized that very well and they built a whole thesis based on that, those needs, okay? specifically the counter-terrorism alliance, okay? to provide Turkey a sort of uh, a possibility to align with Israel and counter the Palestinian terrorism of the time, which was a major problem for Israel back, back in those years, uh, especially, of course, the, the first Lebanon war um, is, is a prominent example of that uh, problem. So, all of a sudden, we have two narratives of 1915. We have the Armenian genocide, and we have the Armenian question. Turkey asked, the, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, asked uh, veteran diplomats to become suddenly scholars and to retrieve, or to at least argue that they retrieve uh, documents from uh, the Ottoman archives, and to argue that what happened in 1915 was not a genocide at all. It's a question how many Armenians were killed, how did they uh, uh, actually, uh, how did they find themselves dead in the desert, and so on. I'm not getting into those details because they are not really what matters here. What matters is that we suddenly have two accounts of the same events, and we have a, a, a diaspora community that argue for, for one thing, and they are not gathered under a nation state yet, we don't have the Republic of Armenia yet, and we have a quite strong country, member in a, a NATO a member, okay, with a lot of uh, good allies in the West, some of which very critical of Turkey, but still, Turkey was very important, the Cold War uh, uh, ally of the West, and suddenly we have a totally different uh, uh, setting. Okay, and it was, it's very important to also mention here that um, the, the attacks on Turkish diplomats and the attempt to force Turkey to recognize the Armenian genocide was not just an act that operate uh, pressure on Turkey, it was a pressure on Turkish identity. Because since 1923, since the Republic of Turkey uh, was founded by uh, Kamal Ataturk, very important uh, uh, part of uh, uh, Turkish uh, identity was based on the notion that the Armenian genocide never happened and denying it in history curriculum uh, books um, and, and so on and so forth was very important integral part of Turkish identity. Okay? So it was not just an attack on Turkey, it was an attack on, 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 on uh, Mustafa Kemal's secular heritage. Okay. Good. 
So we have those uh, veteran diplomats who write uh, denialist historiography. And we have a, a campaign uh, in international forums that argue against the Armenian genocide and the alleged Armenian massacre. The Armenian massacre is a very important term because Israeli diplomats will uh, embrace this term and will never use the, the word G, uh, the G word, and they will try to stick to the Armenian uh, massacre, and that's very important. And we have a disputed history, as we mentioned. Okay, now we are shifting the focus to Israel, okay? Because after this uh, very important background, we can look at Israel a little bit and understand what happened, what drove Israel and Israeli foreign ministry to support uh, the Turkish account of 1915. This guy, this gentleman over here, David Ben-Gurion, first prime minister of Israel, was uh, very much in favor of the periphery doctrine. In order to uh, create a sort of a doctrine of uh, foreign relations for Israel. He believed that Israel need to uh, break the Arab hostility in the Middle East, okay? And try to create an alliance with uh, other non-Arab Muslim countries, okay? So if you look at the, the map of the Middle East, of course, the, the, it's Egypt, uh, Jordan, Syria, of course, Iraq. We have two very big and uh, uh, large Muslim countries in the region. On the external perimeter of the Middle East, we have Turkey and Iran. And, and although Ben Gurion was aiming also on, uh, to Sudan and Ethiopia, we are focusing now on Iran and Turkey. Those were also a very important American allies uh, in the Middle East. So together with Israel, we have a very important tri triangle here. And focusing just one moment on Turkey, uh, sorry, on Iran, um, Iran under the Shah and the relations with Israel were based on uh, intelligence uh, uh, sharing, uh, also training of the Shah's secret police by the Mossad. Um, it was a very important listening post to the Arab world, of course. And after 1967, we have the Elat-Ashkelon uh, pipe, uh, oil pipeline. And we are talking about a, a major investment of almost three decades in Iran, very important. And it was... Uh, a very important pillar of Israel's uh, foreign policy in the region, and generally speaking, there was a lot of uh, investment in the relations with uh, the Shah. Uh, Israel used to send their best, best training uh, diplomats to those countries, especially to Iran, because of the sensitivity, because of the importance of the relations with him, which uh, uh, after, yeah, in the late 70s, become uh, taking a totally different path. Okay, so in the late Cold War in the Middle East, we suddenly have a, a turning point, very important turning point. During most of the 70s, we have called alliance between Israel and Turkey, mainly because pro-Islamic leaders in uh, Turkish uh, uh, politics that were dominating uh, and trying to uh, construct Turkish foreign policy towards an anti-Western uh, and pro-Islamic uh, position, very close to what happened in, in Iran. And then we have in 1979 the Islamic Revolution in Iran. Okay, so these, these events are very important because all this, this uh, dynamic is very important to our story because this is where the Armenian genocide, which I just discussed, comes uh, as a viable, a viable uh, component here. Um, 
1979 was a defining moment in the Middle East. If you look now in the discussions of what's going on in the Middle East, it's all about Iran, it's all about the nuclear, uh, nuclear uh, uh, plan, and it's all about uh, making sure that Iran is not a danger uh, to, the, to the security of the Middle East, but maybe also to, to the security of, uh, of the world, right? Um, it was a defining moment because it was also, uh, there was a sort of a domino effect on what happens in Turkey, right? Which I just mentioned, those uh, pro-Islamic uh, factions in, in, uh, in Turkey. And we have uh, the 19, we call it in the uh, literature, the 1979 moment, okay? So together with Turkey, Iran had a, a major role uh, in the regional stability of the Middle East, not only for Israel, but also to the Americans. And Israel lost three decades of massive investment in Iran under the Shah, which went down the drain in 1979. So Israel was making sure that the image we see here um, will not uh, continue to uh, an Islamic revolution in uh, Turkey as well. So Israel, Israeli diplomats were anxious from the positive momentum of uh, a revolutionary momentum in the Middle East, and the fact that uh, both Iran and Turkey could be, we can say uh, goodbye to them for, uh, for quite some time. Um, and Turkey suddenly become from an important ally in the Middle East to Israel's most strategic ally and a vital uh, a country to the security of Israel in the Cold War and the Middle East. Luckily, luckily, the 12th of September in 1980 was a turning point uh, in terms of uh, what happens in Turkey. The military uh, junta stopped the chaos, stopped the revolutionary momentum, and created a sort of a different reality. Um, but at least they stopped the, the, the Islamic revolutionary momentum, and they established a, a new government um, led by G uh, General Conan Avran, um, and, and at least the, the, this, well, let's say, uh, very negative momentum from Israeli point of view stopped, okay? Turkey did not become a second Iran, that's for sure. But from an Israeli, from an Israeli standpoint, even though the Turkey's uh, military elite were quite, let's say, neutral towards Israel, and they're even potential good potentially good allies because of strategic uh, point of view of the uh, military, um, they were actually facing another problem in Turkey. Turkey's uh, energy uh, crisis between 1978 and 1980, and the fact that it served to shift, this uh, uh, crisis served to shift uh, Turkey's foreign policy from a neutral foreign policy and even if a positive foreign policy towards the West and Israel, towards an anti-Israeli stance because of the Arab pressure was sold uh, uh, or uh, uh, gave Turkey all its uh, energy needs and they demanded actually those Arab leaders to uh, boycott Israel and Turkey had to take a sort of a, a calculated uh, a decision how to position themselves in this uh, complex situation. So what they did, I'm sorry, I'll go back to this. Um, what they did is basically not shutting down the embassy entirely. They decided to demote the relations with Israel to the lowest possible representation. 
Okay? They sent the ambassadors back and put uh, uh, two administrators as diplomats, and that uh, we call the charge affairs, the, the responsible of the affairs in the uh, uh, in the embassy, but it's it's the lowest representation possible. So they kept something for for the future. They didn't cut the, the relations entirely, but they could show they could wave to the Arab countries. You see, we sent the ambassador back. We did what you asked us. Leave us alone. Okay. So, Alon Lieli was he was the uh, uh, Israeli charge affairs in the embassy, uh, the embassy in Ankara in those years. When I interviewed him, he actually discussed many other factors, but he mentioned how it felt to sit there and basically be able to do nothing. With all this pressure coming from Jerusalem, do something, try to engage with them, try to make appointments, try to talk to those generals, try to do something. He was so frustrated. He could not do anything, and he did not have access, not to the military junta, and not to the uh, elite of the Turkish Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And they, he was waiting so anxiously that they will summon him, they will call him to talk about something. Okay? It's important because then Israeli uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs back in Jerusalem start to understand there is a potential here of a thesis between, the, if, if we we, I mean them, uh, will try to sell a sort of a thesis that there is a cooperation between PLO and Asala, right? Then maybe they would like to counter tell it with us against these uh, mutual connections, okay? Mutual uh, uh, cooperation. Of course, the, these two organizations had also different uh, 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 goals to achieve, but they were trying to focus on the anti-imperialist uh, agenda of both organizations and the fact that they both operated from Lebanon. Okay? That's very important. So geographically speaking, the proximity of uh, the operations of Assad and uh, PLO and other organizations of uh, Palestinian organizations uh, and the fact that Beirut became the hub, southern Lebanon became the hub of regional terrorism was a mutual interest for both Israel and Turkey to cooperate on that uh, specific uh, point. So, I want to, there's so many uh, uh, examples I could give you, but I decided to focus on this specific quote from an Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, document, which explained to Israeli diplomats, not only in Turkey, but also throughout Europe, how to basically sell the thesis, how to explain to Turkish diplomats and to other diplomats how this cooperation actually works, okay? So they mention, for example, specific people, specific uh, Arab terrorists, which uh, uh, PLO terrorists, which Israel had to engage with in the past, and they try to uh, basically explain that they had uh, uh, supplied PLO supplied uh, revolutionary propaganda to the Armenians and inspired them, okay? Um, and emphasize again the, the issue of Lebanon, the importance of Lebanon, the geographical uh, proximity, and the fact that they were uh, also doing some cooperations for each other. So, Armenian uh, uh, perpetrators or Armenian uh, terrorists used to 
uh, do some work for PLO and vice versa, okay? So that, that actually emphasizes the need for both Turkey and Israel to cooperate uh, on this issue and make it uh, as, um, as a mutual problem, okay? All right, we are moving further. In uh, 1983, the peak of Armenian terrorism actually declines. It was mainly because of this uh, explosion in Paris, the early airport attack, which in many of Asala's uh, attacks on Turkish diplomats or Turkish targets, there were some uh, casualties uh, by third parties, but specifically in this uh, uh, event, um, 55 people were injured. Okay? That was... So suddenly there was some criticism already about how justified uh, the terrorism uh, objectives of Asala, but still they got quite a lot of support from the Armenian diaspora for uh, fighting uh, an important cause, identity, identity cause of uh, 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 diaspora Armenians, but this uh, affair definitely uh, also drew a lot of criticism from Western countries, and suddenly the Armenians did not, did not look so uh, friendly and uh, nice and, and fighting for an important cause. They were actually uh, drawing quite a lot of criticism and therefore this is where we see how uh, Armenian terrorism declines and a new um, agenda, commemor commemorative agenda emerged um, where some Armenian scholars and uh, lobbies, especially in the United States, but also in Western Europe, uh, especially in France, for example, they were trying to uh, transform this uh, commemorate the three R's into a more uh, traditional commemoration uh, uh, path, and to, uh, for example, present Armenian uh, genocide papers in international forums, try to explain exactly, based on research, what happens, what happened in 1915. Um, for example, they were trying to establish part of uh, the, Armenian, the United States uh, Holocaust Memorial Museum, which was just in the foundation years during the early 80s. It was open to public in 1991, but during the 80s there were a lot of discussions whether or not what should be actually the uh, uh, the commemorative uh, path of the museum, how the museum should present the events of the Holocaust and also other genocides. The Armenians were trying to basically uh, uh, enter or be part of the exhibition, mentioning the Armenian genocide of 1915. So we see how they shift the momentum, try to shift the terrorist momentum and become more powerful, uh, at least uh, to draw less criticism and, and uh, draw less negative, negative uh, uh, views on what happened with the uh, terrorism uh, period. But they didn't succeed well because Israel was very much involved in those operations and trying to block the Armenians uh, uh, for the Turks. Um, and this is also a very important uh, perspective of uh, uh, this whole Armenian genocide recognition uh, part and of course uh, from an Israeli perspective, a Jewish perspective um, the, the uniqueness of the Holocaust the importance of Jewish suffering in the Holocaust was not really part of the agenda of uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs 
back in the 80s, they did not discuss it among themselves. Like, I mean, I, I, when I read so many documents, I didn't uh, notice any, any uh, discussions around it. Um, it was actually proposed uh, quite a lot by Turkish diplomats that the Jews in the United States, in Turkey, and the, ministry, the Israeli Minister of Foreign Affairs should actually adopt the uh, Turkish narrative because it will be beneficial to the thesis of the uniqueness of the Holocaust and building a sort of a hierarchy of victimhood, the Jews first and then all the others, okay? But it's really important to say that, um, yeah, back in the time, it, it, it did not play a, an important role. It becomes very important later on in the third period uh, with the ethno-nationalist uh, agenda of the government and the Israeli parliament uh, uh, during Erdogan uh, uh, period. All right. So, Turkey's energy problems are solved. Israel is helping uh, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, I should emphasize, uh, helping Turkey to block Armenian initiatives to recognize the Armenian genocide, especially in the United States, but also in <coughs> other third-party uh, countries. And we suddenly have a situation where the Armenian genocide and the contested memories of the Armenian genocide, where Israel responded at the beginning to this whole situation as an ad hoc situation, right? How do we, what do we do? How do we manage this crisis with Turkey? We lost Iran, now we need to, to deal with Turkey. Okay, so let's, let's work with this uh, counter-terrorism uh, initiative. All right, let's help them cancel this conference. All right, let's do this, let's do that. Suddenly, this policy or this uh, behavior was starting to be a norm. Okay, so there was actually expectations from Israel built on those successes, the, the, the previous successes, that Israel will, will be uh, the, the defender of Turkey in international forums and, and defend uh, Turkey uh, with the, about the Armenian question, the Armenian question of the Armenian massacre. Okay, so this were, these were the formative years. And I'm going back to this slide, and I also added here the, the text from the Armenian Genocide Resolution from the Israeli Knesset. It's a, a more uh, updated one, but uh, the idea stays the same. Um, from 1989, uh, and I mentioned that, all, all that happens uh, during the late 70s, uh, uh, early 80s, and the 80s unfolds to this uh, position where now suddenly there are two fronts. The front in the Knesset, where the Ministry of Foreign Affairs should do something about this because the Knesset cannot recognize the Armenian genocide, it will upset Turkey, right? And we still have to defend Turkey in international forum. So suddenly the Ministry of Foreign Affairs has two, actually two fronts to, to uh, deal with. Um, so they, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs actually made sure that every time those bills will uh, try to pass, they will try to uh, do something about it in the sense that they will, uh, for example, take the discussion from the Education Committee to the uh, Foreign Affairs and National Security Committee. Okay, So this is where they have more presence and this is how they can actually monitor the discussion. There is no media presence in, the, in that uh, the letter committee. So it was far more easy for them to dominate uh, or to actually control uh, the situation in the Knesset. Um, 
And I would like to recap and uh, talk a little bit uh, again about my argument. So I argued that from historical perspective, the formative years um, were actually the period in which the, the uh, Israeli policy on the Armenian genocide actually crystallized, but it was not a, de a decision-making. It was not based on any, any calculated strategy. It was basically an ad hoc uh, policy, a responsive policy to a, a crisis, and suddenly uh, the, the Armenian genocide, the contested memories of the Armenian genocide was just there as an opportunity, but this unfolds into the 90s and the uh, millennium period, which turns into uh, a more calculated and a clear strategy and, and decision-making. All right. Um, so here I wrote that, and I want to focus on, again, on the Israeli governments, consecutive governments. It's quite clear why they won't recognize the genocide. They will not take such a, a bad decision for Israel's strategic uh, interest and for many important interests, uh, other interests with, with third countries, for example, Azerbaijan, okay, that in, in uh, uh, conflict with the Republic of Armenia. So they will not do this, uh, they will not take those uh, uh, chances and do something that is not beneficial to them. However, the Knesset should have done that, or we should have expect from the Knesset to do it because they're supposed to represent those a range of uh, political and cultural uh, uh, views in Israeli society, and they still refuse to do so. It's a different discussion to talk about what, what's going on in the Knesset and how this unfolds from year to year, from uh, for period to period, but it, it really uh, uh, requires a separate, uh, separate uh, uh, talk. Um, I would like to thank you for... Uh, yeah, for attending and of course uh, listening to my talk. Uh, and I want to just say that this talk was uh, uh, based on my PhD dissertation, which will, as uh, Yaakov mentioned, will turn into a book uh, next year. Um, and it was based on a number of peer-reviewed articles uh, and journal articles, uh, journal articles which I mentioned, and news outlet uh, articles, short essays which I wrote uh, in the last uh, few years. And you can find them in my academia page. But of course, I would love to hear from you uh, questions, and uh, we can continue to elaborate on that. Thank, Thank you very you. much.